0: I'm just so grateful to be here with you guys. What an incredible, kind hospitality you have shown. I'm particularly thankful for my friend, Dr. Kevin Watson, grateful for the unmerited kindness he has lavished, uh, both from the microphone and in uh, our personal conversation about this opportunity. We, We had made plans, both of us, to wear a tiara for these events, but when he bagged out at the last minute. I just left mine in my suitcase. Thanks a lot, Kevin. I spent money on that tiara, so. You'll find his on eBay, I think, afterwards. I'm particularly grateful to you, Dr. Uh, Dean Still, for having me. It's an incredible kindness. What you guys are doing here is inspiring. And those of us who are, among the Wesleyans in the room who are, are you know, in that stream, we cannot thank you enough for what you are contributing to the body of Christ. Thank you, thank you. And I will tell you that we need you a lot more than you need us. And in fact, we are a hot mess, so. <clears throat> Probably didn't put that in our little, you know blurb at the top of the page (laughs) I'm really grateful to the Methodists in the room who have come for this uh, so that you can be exposed to what Truett is doing and to the to those of you who are part of the Truett family day in and day out thank you for letting us invade your space thank you we'll be gone soon (laughs) but thank you so much for letting us invade your space so this is my prayer this morning and I'm hoping to make it yours Bend us, Lord. Bend us. In 1903, Evan Evan Roberts was 25 years old. He was a Christian coal miner and a student who began to pray for God to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And God did a work in his life. He uh, went to a worship service where an evangelist named Seth Joshua was preaching. And Roberts heard Joshua pray, Lord, bend us. The Holy Spirit grabbed Evan with that prayer. He heard the Spirit say to him, this is what you need. And so Roberts wrote in his journal, I felt a living power pervading my bosom. It it took my breath away and my legs trembled exceedingly. This living power became stronger and stronger as each one prayed until, until I felt it would tear me apart. My whole bosom was a turmoil over the the seat in front of me. I fell over the seat in front of me. My face was bathed in perspiration. I felt my knees buckle. The tears flowed in streams. And I cried out, bend me, bend me. It was God's commending love which bent me. What a wave of peace flooded my bosom. I was filled with compassion for those who must bend at the judgment, and I wept. Following that, the salvation of the human soul was solemnly impressed on me. I felt ablaze with the desire to go through the length and breadth of Wales to tell of the Savior. After that experience... Evan would wake up at one in the morning and pray for hours, invaded by the intense love of God, a deep desire to see others come to Christ. He began to pray together with a few others, bend this Lord, but the prayer quickly became very personal for him, bend me, God, bend me. A few weeks later, he saw a vision of God reaching down from heaven to touch whales and he predicted a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That vision launched Evan Roberts out into his country and he began to preach all across Wales and within nine months, over 100,000 people had come to Christ. Five years later, 80,000 of them were still in church. That was a wave that swept Wales. There was a wave of forgiveness and a shift in the spiritual climate over the whole country, a massive revival. You know, we tend to think of revivals as something that happens to a little country church over the course of a week or so. But true revival, real revival influences culture. The Methodist revival in England kept the English people from plunging over a cliff of social and economic upheaval. The first great awakening in America created dialogue across some deep divides and likely fed into the American Revolution. Great awakenings don't happen in a vacuum. When they happen, cultures notice. Evan, on the other hand, Evan Roberts, he didn't last. He became increasingly irrational and short-tempered and his emotions became full of condemnation. He ended up moving in with a woman who controlled him and distorted what he preached. He spent a year confined to bed, pretty close to insane. He lived to be 72, listen to me. He lived to be 72 years old but preached his last sermon when he was in his 20s. Bend this, Lord bend us. These great moves of the Spirit, even the ones marked by deep human fallenness, matter to us. Howard Snyder says, the more we can learn from the past, the more useful we may be as agents of great awakening. The last sermon he preached was in his 20s. I know pastors my age and older may still be preaching every Sunday but the last decent sermon they preached was in their 20s none of y'all I'm just talking about people you know eyes up front don't look at them right now stay forward stay forward you know but you know right they do the work they love the people They lead worship every Sunday, but they preach their last sermon decades ago. So, because I don't want to be one of them. I made a deal with God a few years ago, don't do this. (laughs) But I said, Lord, I want the favor of first-person stories. I am no longer willing to lean on the stories of miracles happening in other countries to other people with whom I have no connection. The stuff you find on YouTube. While I am grateful for their witness, leaning on their stories feels lazy to me. I wanna know the power that raised Lazarus from the dead. Who's with me? I wanna know that power. I wanna know that my ministry stands in the great apostolic tradition of the New Testament followers who first received the charge to take authority, to cast out demons, cure disease, proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. My friends, I believe that's what it means to be a New Testament church. This is the charge Jesus gave his followers in Luke chapter nine. So seriously, if you have your Bible, you need to pull it out right now and mark this page. I want it to be your mission statement, your marching orders. I tell every, my, everybody in my congregation every week, the best way to engage the message is with the Bible, something to write on, something to write with. So when you have that, look with me at Luke chapter nine, verses one and two. We've had it read already. I just want to read it again. Now that you have some, now that you're awake. <laughs> When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out no nope, to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the king to welcome and advance the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. This charge sits like a bookend on the other side of a long section of Luke where Jesus is actually doing those things. The other bookend is Luke chapter 4 where Jesus stands up in church one day and claims his mission. The Spirit of the Lord is on me for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord favor. Jesus claims his mission, and then he goes out and he does it. Who does that? Nobody does that. Your mission statement is something you're supposed to spend a weekend doing with your vision team. You stick it on your website, and nobody ever does it. But from there to Luke chapter 9 is wall-to-wall ministry. And while he's out there, he collects a few misfits, and he lets them watch and learn how he does it. And then in Luke chapter 9, he gathers those same misfits together. Let me get an amen from the misfits in the room. And he transfers the mission. Clearly, his expectation is that they would see this charge as the normal work of a follower of Jesus. When Jesus defines what it means to follow him out into the world, he says, this is what people do who believe in me. They're sent out with power and authority to cast out all demons, to cure disease, to proclaim the kingdom, and to heal the sick. And so they went, it says, verse 6, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere because they didn't know any better. (laughs) They didn't know that you could do decades of ministry, be called a good pastor, move on up the chain without ever proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, and for goodness sake, you'd never get within spitting distance of a demon. (laughs) Jesus gave them power and authority to cast out all demons. Dennis Prager is a writer and thinker, a Jewish man. He's written extensively on this topic of life and death in the Israelite worldview. He talks about the Egyptian preoccupation with death. Their holy book was called the Book of the Dead. Their greatest monuments were pyramids, which were basically oversized caskets. As pagans, the Egyptians were everything the kingdom of God was not. So when God brought the Israelite people up out of slavery in Egypt, he had to shake all the the Egypt out of them, totally reorient their thinking. Hundreds of years of wrong theology had to be dismantled. The work in the desert was the work of learning to live. So the book of Leviticus, which has to be the most misunderstood book in the Bible, is actually all about life. What we eat, what we wear, what we watch and get entertained by, who we choose for intimacy, all those rules in Leviticus that sound like they're sucking all the fun out of life are actually about rejecting the culture of death imposed by the Egyptians so God's chosen people could choose life in every detail of it. So all of those little odd rules in Leviticus... Every one of them is a rejection of the culture of death. Think of this. The the Egyptians were the inventors of leavened bread. They learned how to ferment yeast so they could make a light loaf of bread, and they invented ovens to bake it in. So the Israelites were told to use unleavened bread. And yeast for them was a symbol of sin, of death. So on their celebration of Passover, you remember what they were told to do. Go out, search your house, remove every single crumb of Egypt, of death, every speck of the anti-kingdom. So when Leviticus teaches the Jews to rid their houses, that is God helping, uh, of, of yeast, that is God helping his people. Listen to this. That is God in Leviticus helping his people rehearse for the days of Luke chapter 9 when Jesus sends his followers out with power and authority to look for signs of death. Signs of Egypt, signs of the anti-kingdom. And he tells them, wherever you see him, demons, disease, sickness, you just pick it out just the same way you find yeast at Passover. Cast out death and proclaim life over your people. Maybe even today when we... Practice this commission ourselves by laying hands on people and refusing death and hopelessness over people's lives. When we lay hands on them as we pray for them, maybe we place ourselves in that same sent outline that runs from Leviticus through Luke and into it and out into the world. We place ourselves in that line, out out from Jesus through his first followers into all those who have come since who not. Not only carry the faith, but carry its power. I've had the experience more than once of seeing a demon leave somebody's body, so I do believe that we have power and authority to cast out demons. You bet I do. I also believe the Lord longs to see his church acting as if he is a supernatural God and ours is a supernatural power and our sentness is to the same things that called the Israelites out of Egypt. It is a call to choose life and reject death, to reject the enemy of our souls, to reject the kingdom of darkness. I'm thinking about that apartment complex downtown Augusta that our our church serves. We have a a staff person on site there. It's an apartment complex for low and no income adults with disabilities. And people from our church go down there all the time for food and prayer. We get these long prayer requests. I remember praying through that list once. Jan needs help finding dental insurance to get dentures. And Jamelia wants complete healing from her recent stroke. Dixie doesn't want to be alone for the holidays. And then buried in this long line of requests was this. Roger asked that Satan would soon be thrown into the fiery pit. I say yes and amen, Roger. Yes and amen. And last week, I think the Lord drew on that prayer that Roger prayed. Last week, after a Bible study, we lead a Bible study down there every Wednesday, and, 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 uh, and, and our associate pastor met with this guy who um, had an outright phobia about baptism. And he had all kinds of other stuff in his life, too, but that was just a phobia. And our friend Chris laid hands on this man, and he cast out the demon of fear, keeping him from the grace of God. And when the guy was done, he said, I guess I want to be baptized. Amen. It looks to me like Luke chap- from Luke chapter 9, like we have permission to pray with confidence Roger's prayer and to trust that through our prayers and our spirit-desperate ministry, God intends to do just that, that Satan would soon be cast into the fiery pit. Hang on, Jesus wins. He gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to cure diseases. Cheryl Scroggins lives in Edmonds, Washington. I met her I don't know, three, four years ago, somewhere in there. Four years ago, she had a stroke, her second one. It was a clot in her temporal lobe that affected her right side, including her right eye, which was blinded by the stroke. Sort of like when a lightning bolt goes through a tree, the tree is just gone. It's, it's, it's done for. She ended up with vertigo and, and nausea, balance issues, in addition to that lost eye. And she was told the window of time for it to correct had passed by the time I met her. That's what she'd been told, and that she would have to just deal with it. So then she showed up for this retreat that I was leading for women in her church. And during one of the sessions, I led them through some healing prayer. I invited them to let Jesus walk with them back to a place in their lives, in their past, where the enemy had lied to them. Cheryl saw the memory. It was abuse in her childhood. And she heard the lie. She heard unworthy and fear. I walked them through that process of of, uh, letting Jesus remove the lie and replace it with his truth. And Cheryl received that and she went home that day. She said she told her husband she hadn't felt that free in years. She really felt like she'd received a healing. But that's not all. The next morning when she woke up to go to church she opened her eyes and immediately she could see clearly from the damaged eye immediately she says god had come softly this is what she wrote god had come softly and quietly in the night and healed me completely it was as my own doctor said a miracle i learned from that experience i have to tell you this she she got to church the next day. I didn't really know her. Didn't you know? People were saying, "Did you hear what happened to Cheryl?" I'm like, well, "I didn't know what happened to Cheryl." I was preaching at that church that Sunday. a big church, and um and but on the first service, they. First thing they did, you know, before the welcome even, called Cheryl up there and and everybody had known what had happened to her and they all just praised God for this miracle and when she walked off the stage, she had one of those disability things that you hang on your car, you know, and she handed it to me and she said, I won't be needing this anymore, I'm driving home. And I thought, I'm not gonna be behind you on that drive (laughs) because I believe you and everything, but it's been a while, friend. What I learned from that experience is that sometimes, maybe not every time, but at least sometimes, the illness may be physical, but the disease is spiritual. Sometimes supernatural ministry simply means proclaiming kingdom truth over spiritually damaged, spiritually dead people and calling them to life. I saw Cheryl a year later It was like the weekend COVID hit Seattle, and that's where I was, so I'm basically responsible. And she'd just seen her ophthalmologist for a follow-up appointment, and he told her not only was her vision completely restored, but he characterized the health of her eyes as juvenile. He said she had juvenile eyesight. I haven't had juvenile eyesight even when I was a juvenile. I said, I'm not that great at figuring out when a person's Physical illness is really just a manifestation of some sin sickness or spiritual confusion. Probably they can't tell you either. If they could, they would have healed themselves. But in the absence of knowing, I subscribe to the Nike school of thought on this. Just do it. Just pray for people. Pray for them. When I pray, I remind Jesus that he told me to pray for things and that most of what doesn't happen is not because he doesn't show up, but because I don't ask. So I pray and I trust. Just do it. Just pray. Pray believing. And if you're on your way out of here towards your first church, I'm going to tell you, do this from the day you walk in the door. Don't make that change halfway through your appointment or they'll blame everything on that when it's everything else you've done they don't like. Do Jesus from the day you walk in the door. Lay hands on people. Call out the darkness. Keep on praying for people to be healed, saved, and delivered. Even if no one ever does so on your watch. Because that's what you are sent to do. And on the days when you don't believe it'll ever happen, pray anyway. And here's the thing. Mike Pilavachi teaches me this. If you're wrong, nobody dies. (laughs) If you pray and nothing obvious happens, at least you prayed. He gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to cure disease. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick. Just at the beginning of the pandemic, well, like that first or second Sunday that we were all back, I had this young couple come to church. Everybody else had left, but this young couple started coming to our church. And I visited visited with her pretty early on after she'd started attending our church. She she told me she'd been raised in a highly legalistic tradition. We would call it a cult. Because of that, she'd rejected Jesus and religion altogether. There's a lot more to the story than that, but I'll skip to the part where I offered her the chance to receive healing prayer. The same process that Cheryl had walked through, I, 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 she, you know, I told her, you know, I want to I go back through your memories and find out where Jesus, I mean, find out where the enemy spoke a lie into your life and let Jesus show that to you and then let him take the lie out and put his truth in there. I remember, this is funny, she said to me, I don't pray, I haven't prayed for years. But I assured her that was okay. She didn't have to pray in order for Jesus to show up. I told her, I pray, Jesus prayed. Two out of three is not bad. That's what we'll do. So I invited Jesus to come and speak to her about the wounds in her life, especially the wounds created by legalism and a religious spirit. And I asked him to walk with her back through her memories and help her see where those wounds were first inflicted. And at some point she said, Jesus is not doing what you asked. He just came in the room. Like my office. I'm sure it's not the first time Jesus had been in my office, it was just different this time. It was Jesus had walked into my office in a way she could see. Somehow, in the way supernatural things happened, she was able to experience the very real presence of Jesus in the room we were in. And she began to narrate what he was doing. I couldn't see him or hear him, but evidently she could. And she said, he just invited me to believe. And now she's crying. She's looking directly at Jesus, and I'm stunned by what I'm hearing. I've just watched Jesus completely bypass the middleman and proclaim the kingdom. <laughs> and now she's now she's accepted his invitation to salvation, and then she's immediately healed of the spirit of religion that had her so bound and angry. And that whole scene, just stunning to watch. I didn't grow up in this stuff. I'm not used to it. It unleashed an amazing change in this woman's life This unfolding still today. She will tell you that that moment changed everything. Ken Blue. Author of the book called Authority to Heal says this, openly receiving healing for ourselves and confidently praying for others rests ultimately, listen to this, rests ultimately in our understanding of who God is. In any issue relating to God, the who question is is prior to all others. This fall, I'm starting a 12-step group for folks who have experienced spiritual trauma, there's been so much deconstruction in the last two and a half, three years. I feel like we need to sit down and talk about it, but I'm completely, un, I mean, I'm not qualified for that. I'm not a counselor. I'm not going to try to pretend to be. I'm going to let the steps do the work, but I'm doing the whole thing on, this, on the strength of this one quote. I want to say it again. Openly receiving healing for ourselves and confidently praying for others rests ultimately in our understanding of who God is. I mean, that's where spiritual trauma comes. It's, it's when our, our understanding of who God is gets distorted. In any issue relating to God, the who question is prior to all others. I completely agree. Until we know God as loving, as for us, as powerful, until we know our Father as he really is in all his glory, we won't seek out his healing power. And our Father as he really is, is expressed powerfully in the supernatural act of healing. This is a holy pattern that has repeated itself over and over through the ages as the Father's glory is exposed in life after life after life, healing after healing after healing, salvation after salvation after salvation. Here's what I believe about the call on those who follow Jesus. We are called to take some risks. We push back against the darkness, knowing we have the power of God behind us. We fight because we've been given the commission to cast out demons as we proclaim the kingdom of God. We fight for the souls of people and the values of Jesus. That means taking risks, crossing into enemy territory, being bold and courageous. This kingdom advancing work is the work of a warrior. It is not pulling up a chair and watching the battle, but getting in there to fight it. It is most certainly not relaxing into a career about which folks might say after 30 or 40 years that you preached your last good sermon decades ago. So what does it look like to love people so well that I'm willing to cry out to God on their behalf? What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom in such a way that diseases get cured and people get healed? If we're going to cross over into supernatural territory, things will be messy. We will need to make peace with sounding a little foolish at times. Just do it, just do it. Walk up to somebody in Walmart, say, you look like you could use some prayer. Stop somebody in the hallway today and give them a prophetic word. Spend more than five minutes with your roommate in prayer. Like Give them a good 30 minutes of exploring their wounds with Jesus right there. Don't sit passively by and hope for the best and assume it will happen without you. My friends, especially those who are students here, you have been given a trust and Christ is counting on you.